Good evening, everybody. I hope y'all are doing good today. It is Monday, March 15th, 2021. And I am currently taking a class that focuses on Toni Morrison novels. And I find myself just enamored totally with Toni Morrison and her books. Though my favorite so far that we have read is Sula. And I wrote a paper on it about a week ago. And I want to read it to y'all. The paper is titled Sula the Robin. Realities of gender, class, colorism, history, and of course race are all obvious and profound themes in the works of Toni Morrison. Her raw character dialogues, bold social commentaries, and controversial stories which depict American realities through the lens of black fiction have rooted her five decades of work into the American literary canon. Woven into the fabric of Morrison's books is also the recurring technique of naturalistic writing. In his essay, Toni Morrison's Truth, Hilton Owls says nature appears through the cracks of many of her books. Morrison wrote with much attention and intention to incorporate nature into the progress of her plots. I would say, though, that nature does not appear through the cracks, but is loudly present in Morrison's novels. In Sula, there is a continuous back and forth between the characters and nature that the reader must notice without any hand-holding from the author. Over the course of the novel, the four elements, earth, water, fire, and air, are each presented in nuance, cohesion with the events and aging of the characters. Sula herself is not simply a human character, but an embodiment of air. This detail is accentuated by Robbins, which signifies Sula's presence and manifests as a mirrored natural form. Earth serves as both a physical and contextual setting in Sula. There is an ever-shifting relationship between character, circumstance, and their geographic placement throughout the novel. Sula takes place in the bottom of Medallion, Ohio, and the noted history of the area is a reflection used to usher in the temperamental story. A formerly enslaved man was told that the bottomland was the bottom of heaven, best land there is. This believed lie led to the subsequent inheritance of unfertile land and hard lives endured by the characters. Their dispositions toward themselves and each other reflect the barrenness of the land, the lie that placed their ancestors there, and the wariness of the gullibility which got them tricked. The people of the bottom did not have much aside from the commitment to God and an insistence to maintain a moral superiority over their white neighbors, if nothing else. They find small consolation in the fact that every day they could literally look down on the white folks. Land further serves as a conduit for context and history as it is like a portal for black people. A portal which maintains barriers that separate different racial realities and the multiple selves of the characters that navigate them. Geography works as a barrier between a free and an enslaved history as stated by the black Canadian residents of Medallion who remarked every chance they got that they had never been slaves. Land acts as a portal for Nell and her mother Helene when they go down to New Orleans for her great-grandmother's funeral. They cross a social portal as soon as they board the train headed south, where the otherwise respected Helene of Medallion becomes the, dis the disrespected gal on her way back to New Orleans and her past. For both Nell and Helene, the journey is one through a historical, ancestral, and cultural portal. Nell meets her grandmother, a former prostitute, vastly unlike her mother and quite like adult Sula in her bearing. 
Helene's mother, Rochelle, speaks to Nell in Creole, and when Nell inquires Helene about the words she is told, I don't talk Creole and neither do you. I interpreted this exchange as a lie because it seems Helene does speak and understand Creole. She just does not want Nell to do the same. The lie embodies Helene's desire to distance herself and her daughter physically and culturally from her mother, New Orleans, the South, and the historical and social realities that must be faced while there. It is a desire shared by many African Americans who fled the racial violence of the South between the 1860s and the early 20th century. After experiencing both Medallion and New Orleans, meeting her grandmother and viewing her dead great-grandmother, Nell has had an opportunity to observe her ancestral and historical past and fit it to her present. Even if it is from a child's limited capacity to understand, the journey over land and the return to Medallion place Nell into a state where she can consider herself. She observes herself as one observes a mountain, unmovable, unchanging, constant, and independent. Nell self-proclaims, I'm me. I'm not their daughter. I'm not Nell. I'm me. Me. Morrison threads water into the storyline of Sula by incorporating the scene of Chicken Little's drowning. As he drowned, the water darkened and closed quickly over the place where Chicken Little sank. The pressure of his hard and tight little fingers was still in Sula's palms as she stood looking at the closed place in the water. Water serves as a mirror of the subconscious, for it is my mysterious and unknown. When Chicken Little sinks below the water's surface, he takes with him the secret of his death by Sula's hands and Nell's complacence. Both girls, particularly Nell, carry the secret well into adulthood, suppressing the memory that sunk into her subconscious. It is only after Nell goes years insisting to herself that it was Sula's burden to carry the weight of Chicken Little's death as it was her own action which drowned him, that she is forced to acknowledge the memory by a senile Eva that she can activate an introspection thorough enough to understand her own involvement. She remembers that she and Sula were two sides of the same coin and the same curiosity that led Sula to sleep with Nell's husband was the same curiosity that drove Nell to simply stand by and watch as Chicken Little sunk. In Sula, water functions as a concealer of truth, whereas fire illuminates it, forcing characters into confrontation with themselves and others. Mere moments before her death, Hannah confronts her mother about a curiosity as to whether Eva loved her and played with her as a child, and if not, why. Leading up to this scene, there is an established context of dark secrets. The truth behind Eva's missing leg, the undiscussed mercenkilly of Plume, the considered but unconcluded sociopathic tendencies of young Sula are all on the verge of discussion and revelation. Eva speaks to Hannah with impatience and disbelief at her daughter's lack of understanding that wasn't nobody playing in 1895. The question of whether or not Eva loved Hannah triggers Eva, who sits there with a stump where her legs should be as physical evidence of her devotion to her children's survival. Hannah's own turmoil cannot, however, in those last moments, handle the roughness of her mother's abrasive dismissal of her feelings. Eva proclaims agitatedly, what you talking about, did I love you, girl? I stayed alive for you. 
Hannah, who is clearly desperate for some sort of verbal reassurance, an ounce of softness and understanding from her hard-natured mother, experiences the snapping of whatever cord tethered her to the will that had kept her grounded in the world of the living. The exchange ends, and after a few moments, Eva looks out the window to the horror of Hannah, recently set ablaze by her own hands. The flames from the yard fire were licking the blue cotton dress, making her dance. The color of the dress is significant, the blue indicating a return to water, the subconscious, secrets, repressed emotions, the darkness of a troubled soul. The fire physically burns Hannah and metaphorically cleanses the darkness and the trauma, releasing Hannah from her pain. There is a simultaneous revelation between Hannah and Eva in this moment. Hannah was curious as to how much Eva loved her. She wanted a concrete display of affection and devotion as opposed to the implication of love with reference to a hard winter and a missing leg. Eva delivers this display, albeit too late. But nonetheless, she flings her disabled frame right out the window in an act of a powerful maternal instinct. The intensity and emotion conveyed by Morrison in this scene leaves no room for doubt as to whether Eva loved her children or not as she dragged herself toward her firstborn. But Hannah, her senses lost, went flying out of the yard, gesturing and bobbing like a spring jack-in-the-box. Hannah's final act forces Eva into an understanding of the severity of her daughter's emotions and her need for what was denied. Her way of loving was not enough, her disposition to her daughter too damaging, the implication of love not an adequate substitute for proclamation of it. The final revelation brought to light by the fire is that of Sula's nature to her grandmother, whose descriptions often allude to an almost psychic understanding of the world through interpretation of dreams and natural symbolism. Eva recalls to a friend that Sula had watched Hannah burn, not because she was paralyzed, but because she was interested. The chapter ends with this detail because the fire, which is also synonymous with reincarnation, has pushed to the forefront the consequence of action and inaction within the relationships between grandmothers, godmothers, and daughters. Sula embodies characteristics of both her mother and her grandmother as a knife sharpened by two others which are dulled in the process. Whatever Sula's nature, whether it be good or bad, is a direct result of the care and influence of Eva and Hannah and the residual traumas of their own lives passed down. The final element incorporated into Sula is air, and it is intrinsically linked to Sula's presence, personality, and function within the plot. Not long before Hannah's death, Sula comes down with her first cycle, and her changes are subtly noted in Eva's narration. Sula's shifting energy brings about a storm which tears through medallion but brings no rain or lightning and serves as one of several strange occurrences to happen as an omen to Hannah's death. This storm is a foreshadowing of Sula's presence, being a metaphorical storm for the residents of medallion when she returns in her late twenties. As a tornado which rips houses from the ground, forcing people to begin again, Sula challenges the relationships between the people of Medallion. She encourages a negligent mother into spontaneous devotion when it is believed that Sula struck the woman's child. Her tendency to sleep with all the married men of Medallion and later disregard them ironically brought the men closer to their ego-healing wives who, to justify their own judgment, cherished their men more, soothed the pride and vanity Sula Sula had bruised. 
Sula's storm-like presence manifests in Nell's life as well, as the hurt and confusion as to why Sula would sleep with her husband leads Nell to do to a better understanding of herself years down the line when Sula has already passed away. Just as the every other element, F functions as a natural tool of construction and destruction. The heat of the sun fills life while fire can take it away. A river that sustains a settlement can be the same one to flood it. The air that carries seeds across the land will just as likely manifest as a storm that rips trees from the ground. Sula, as air, functions simultaneously as a constructor and destroyer, a necessary evil. As an evil presence, Sula stimulated the population of Medallion to survive her as they did floods, white people, tuberculosis, famine, and ignorance. As written by Morrison, the presence of evil was something to be first recognized, then dealt with, survived, outwitted, triumphed over. Outside of her own function in relation to other characters, Sula embodies air within her own personality as well. She is a person deeply rooted in her own will and desires, with no burden of children to keep her morally bound or accountable for any of her actions. Sula has no desire to be married or have children, as she expresses to Eva before throwing her in the nursing home. I don't want to make somebody else. I want to make myself. Perhaps Sula is selfish, but in her dimension, she has a right to be. She does not owe anybody anything, and she exercises her right to freedom through her independence extensively. Sula navigates the world in such an unorthodox way that is almost unhuman. She is more like a spirit manifested with the sole purpose of affecting the lives of others. I believe this supernatural aspect of Sula is heightened by the robins that signify her presence. A plague of robins complements Sula's return to Medallion, and a robin appears before Shadrach, right before Sula comes to him after killing Chicken Little. I imagine that Sula being a spirit of air, untethered to her physical world, would have become a robin in death. Over the course of the novel, the four elements, earth, water, fire, and air, are each presented in nuanced cohesion with the events and aging of the characters. Sula herself is not simply a human character, but an embodiment of air. Through use of poetic language and masterful plot weaving, Morrison incorporates the elements chronologically within a notably circular, unchronological story, proving that she was as much a capable naturalist as a socio-political writer. <laughs>